Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Thank you guys for um, being here with us this morning. It's really good to see you. Uh, thank you uh, for tuning in this morning, it, one way or the other. Uh, you know, I know it's a challenge one way or the other, so we're grateful that you're here. Um, but man, we need each other. And so it's good to be together, whether in person or online. Last week we had a camping trip, and it was fantastic to sit around a campfire uh, with a group of people and, and spend time with each other's kids and um, get to know some new folks. That was great. Next week, uh, or a couple weeks from now, we're going to have a drive-in movie and we're, we've got a screen ready tested out outside um, we'll have a couple um, fire pits and and so an opportunity for for us to to be with each other after the last indoor service I caught somebody walking out and their comment was man I forget how much I miss this and I need this and I think it's easy to do that so we're grateful that you're here again whether you're you're in person or you're online let me start by asking you this question. How many of you have, on a regular basis, you keep a list? Um, so, like, a, how many of you are daily, you have a daily list that you redo every day? How many have, like, a weekly list, monthly list? Um, yeah, there's something about, um, you know, being a list checker. There's a guy I used to work with named Mike Achapini. He's a little bit older, and he always, he always had a, fr- a front pocket, and he always had a list in his front pocket that he would pull out and he'd have stuff and cross it off. I'm like, man, this guy's so old school. But then after a few years, lists. And so every week I keep a list. Um, I've got my list of stuff. I've got a system, so I'll check it if I've gotten started on it. I'll put a little X through it if I feel like I'm about midway through that project. And then I'll circle it and cross it off uh, when I get done with it. I think this is completely biblical. I think God is a list checker. I think right in the beginning of the Bible, he's got a bunch of stuff to do. And so he gets it done in six days and then gives himself a rest on the seventh day. And so I think this fits with that. He makes us in his image, gives us a list to do, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And so it, it makes a ton of sense for me, um, that we are list checkers. But how does it feel when you get something off of the list and you thought you were done with it, it's circled, it's crossed off, but then you find out you're not done with it and then it comes back on the list, right? That's no good. There are certain things that are just going to come back on the list by default. And so um, given a sermon, honestly, and everybody's got stuff like this, the, the, the benefit, the blessing of giving a sermon is every week I have to deliver and I get to deliver and you get some feedback and so um, deadlines spur action and that's good. But then as soon as I'm done, the clock starts ticking on the next, the next sermon, you know, and so we've got stuff like that, that that pop back up on the list routinely. It used to be that we talked about mail that way, that people go postal because the mail never gets completely de- delivered, and then, and then email, and so now we're all kind of going postal with email, or maybe we're post that because we've just given up on it. Uh, a few years ago, I, a friend had, had told me um, a, a quote that uh, email is like digital waterboarding, and I've, so I use that, and a couple of you have thrown that back to me over time because it stuck with you, and that's kind of it. But email, you know, it's like it, we go e-postal with email. And a few years ago, it was everybody was taking a picture of their inbox when they got it down to zero, and they'd put it on social media. Nobody does that anymore. There's like two of you that do that, and you bug the heck out of the rest of us. Now it's like if you can get it down under 1,000, you feel pretty good about yourself. Um, 
So there's stuff like that. Um, the wheel on the grocery cart is a little bit like that because you get it and you get started and then you're going down the aisle and you realize you got one that leans or one that's loud. That's almost worse for me because I feel like everybody's looking at me like, hey man, would you fix your grocery cart? Like it's super loud. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't do anything. It's, you can't, it's not worth going back and going to get a new one. So you just deal with it, but it's like a constant whatever. Um, I feel like one of, my, one of my favorite things to do in that, in that vein is get my car aligned. And so I love getting my car aligned, uh, getting new tires, getting them balanced, and getting out on the highway. I'll like go out on the highway when I don't need to and just drive and take my hands off the wheel. And when the car drives state, is anyone else super satisfied by that or is it just me? Uh, but then when I get in the car and I find out that it's drifting one way, like that is super frustrating. I'm thinking who borrowed my car, who hit a curb and didn't tell me about it. Or I used to think this when I drove down Capitol before they redid it, because um, I drive down every day. And there were several potholes. There was one giant one. And you could, if you knew where it was, you could miss it. But sometimes you get stuck in traffic and you had to hit it. And every time I hit it, I thought, are they going to pay for my alignment? And who in the city does not know what they're doing with their job that they won't come fix uh, this pothole? And there's just stuff like that that's annoying. One more example, and then I'm going to get on to my point here. But uh, I, have four, I have four kids. Early, early in, the, um, in the church, I would talk about my kids a lot. They were too little to know that I was talking about them. And, and then people were like, hey, man, we know you got kids. We know they're cute. A lot of us don't have kids. We don't really care. So stop talking about your kids. I'm like, okay, message received. I'll stop. And then the last few years, it's been, if I talk about my kids, I will like let them know, hey, I was going to share this story. Is that going to make you feel uncomfortable? Because being a pastor's kid is a thing, and I don't want to objectify them and all that. Today, I have not told them that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to throw them, you, squarely underneath the bus this morning. Because the thing that's probably the most like this in my life, that it's a list, but you can't get it right, is the chore chart in our house. We have a chore chart, it's on the pantry, and uh, my wife spent a lot of time making sure that the chore chart was just and equitable, and that everybody was spread out evenly on the chore chart. I put the chore chart in an Excel spreadsheet, it's color-coded so it's easy to understand. It used to be like laminated, and it's right there in our pantry for all the world to see what everybody's chores are. But I swear to you, if you come to my house on Tuesday, and you ask somebody, hey, do you have any chores today? They'll be like, no, I don't, I don't have any chores today. Uh, this is my day off. No, I'm, I'm looking at the chore chart. It says that you're supposed to vacuum the living room today. No, no, not on Tuesdays. That's Johnny's job on Tuesdays. No, I'm looking, I'm looking at the chart. It's the same chart that's been on the wall for three years. Everybody knows what chores are today. And every single time, like without fail in our house, this is the thing that just can't get right. I feel like we've been really good parents in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like this is the one of the ways that somehow we have completely failed as parents. And so to my church, refute that in any way, shape, or form, go ahead and text me and I'll share it. We can have it out right here in front of the church. All right. Uh, but that's how the chore chart feels. Okay. With all that in place, uh, happy Thanksgiving. With all that tension and frustration, happy th Thanksgiving. Because as I was thinking about Thanksgiving and gratitude and contentment, I thought this is that type of thing where gratitude is something that we know how much it matters. We know we should be more grateful. We know it'll change our, our mind, but it's like we get aligned and then we hit a curb and then we fall out of alignment and so we need to be realigned. Earlier this year, I preached a message. I don't remember when, but, uh, but I had just um, 
read a, a guy that talked about his practice of gratitude, and he kept a gratitude journal. And so every morning he woke up, and the very first thing he did, very first thing, was write down three things that he was grateful for. And I thought, man, that's great. And then he read some scripture, and then he wrote down something, the reflection of the scripture. I thought, man, this is a really great habit. And so I did that. I'm aligned. I did that for like a week and a half. You know what I mean? And then I hit a pothole, and then I stopped thinking about things I was grateful for. And you know what I thought about instead, first thing in the morning? I thought about like the one or two things in my life that seem to not be going the way that they're supposed to, that are like going to complete completely go into the ditch and ruin my life forever because <laughs> that's the default that we go to. And so I feel like if we're aligned, we're, we're grateful and gratitude leads to contentment. But when we're not aligned, what we drift to is, um, it's probably a lot of ditches, but two that really came to mind. One is the ditch of anxiety and whatever we have to worry about. And the other is the ditch of greed. And if I just had this thing, then my life would be so much better. Um, and gratitude is the thing that when we get it, it like keeps us on track and keeps us content. So today, I want you to think about that. It's like taking your car in for an alignment. We're going to get aligned. I hope that I don't tell you anything that you haven't heard before um, today. But I also hope that I tell you things that, because I totally believe it, have the opportunity to change your life and really change your life um, permanently uh, and forever if we practice them. But it's, it's up to us whether or not we do. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, in these few weeks between our last series and Christmas, I'm just taking a few messages out of the book of Timothy, and this is uh, chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Uh, godliness with con- but godliness with contentment is great gain. So right before this, um, Paul is talking about some people that have gone off, off the rails, out of alignment, and they think that godliness is great gain. Um, so they're using God to gain something for themselves, which in some ways, maybe we all do that because we think if, if we follow the rules and we do the things that God says, then everything is going to go perfect in our lives, and if something goes wrong, then we feel like we haven't followed him the right way. I just think there's a default, um, there's a default, uh, to that. I actually was reading a quote or an article about um, Joe Biden the other day who, man, his life is a roller coaster. He's had some horrible things happen. And he said his dad gave him a cartoon early. It was Hagar the Horrible. Anybody remember reading Hagar the Horrible growing up? Um, Where Hagar was saying to God, uh, why me? And and God said back, why not? (laughs) And and Biden left that up on his stuff, like, to remind him that just because you feel like you're doing the right thing doesn't mean things are always going to happen the right way. But we feel like that. And I, the, the godliness can be great gain. I listened to a podcast this week of a pastor um, up in the Midwest that has fallen from grace, and, and it was like the inside story of that. And this guy was all about the money. And um, so people think that. But godliness, Paul saying, godliness with contentment, godliness with contentment, now that is great gain. Uh, For we brought nothing into the world, we can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Maybe the hardest verse in the Bible. If we have food and clothes, we'll be happy. Uh, But those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They have pierced themselves with many pangs. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. A few verses later, he picks this up. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, to be arrogant, not to set, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay. Uh, my first point, stuff is good. Deep theological term, stuff is good. Be thankful for it. Uh, the Bible tells us the streets of heaven will be paved with gold. Revelation chapter 4, John has this vision of what God is like, and it includes all types of jewels, you know. So apparently God likes a little bling. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, but God, God likes nice stuff, and he wants you to enjoy your stuff. Your stuff isn't bad. Um, as for the rich in this present age, uh, that would be most of us. And most of the people listening would, were rich in this present age. Um, we, may, we may not consider ourselves that. We probably don't relish in those riches, but we're pretty comfortable with what we have. And if someone tried to take them away, say God, uh, he would be in for a fight, right? And so we're in that category. And then he says, charge them to feel really bad about all the stuff that they have and to get rid of it immediately and go live in a cardboard box somewhere. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Um, charge them not to be arrogant and find their identity in their riches, but he doesn't. He, he says God provides us with this stuff richly to enjoy, like he wants us to enjoy this stuff. I think sometimes we think about the parable of the rich young ruler where the guy comes to Jesus and Jesus ends up saying to him, hey, go sell everything you have and then follow me, and then you'll get it. And we think that's prescriptive for all of us. Like all of us should, you know, we feel guilty that we haven't sold all of our stuff. And I just don't think, that's the case. I think, um, you know, I'm going to say this throughout, like this really isn't about a set of rules. It's about a relationship with God. And the way we manage our stuff is meant to draw us closer to him and to seek him out and to seek what he wants us individually to do with it. And I think the rich young ruler thing is like, ideally we're list keepers, right? We want a, a set of rules that we can do. And if we do this thing, then we're okay. And it's just not that simple. Uh, I actually was thinking about this and there are some religions that are growing pretty pretty quickly, rapidly, in the United States that are pretty legalistic, rule-following religions, like Mormonism and Islam are growing quick because people want rules, legalistic set of things to, to do. And, and this calls us into relationship with him. So he doesn't charge you to liquidate everything, but charges them not to find your identity, not to elevate your view of yourself because of the stuff that you have, which we do all the time, you know? Uh, and we live in a culture that does, not to be arrogant, not to find your identity in your stuff, and not to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, which again, whole sermon unto itself. One of the things that I've read recently is that during COVID, one of the things people are doing a whole lot more is Zillow searching, which I didn't, never heard that term before, but I get it. Like they get on that housing site, Zillow, and they look up, like, what would a house in that neighborhood cost? Or what about if I could live in there? And we're just, we're hoping in that thing um, in so many different ways that will make us uh, satisfied. And then he says, don't set your hope on that, but set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And how subtle is the difference between being thankful, setting your hope on the stuff, 
and being thankful to the God that gave you this stuff. And I think this is really subtle. So uh, the house the house that we live in. When we started the church, we bought a house in um, east of downtown Raleigh in a part that was really, it's a gentrifying part of Raleigh. We bought it in 2007 when the housing market was skyrocketing. We bought it with another family. And we thought, hey, we're going to buy this. We'll be here for two years. Um, and that, the way that the housing market was going, like the, we'd be able to sell it for enough money to make up on any you know, moving costs, buying and selling costs, all that stuff. But what we really thought is, we're going to move in here, and God likes us, so we're going to make a ton of money when we sell this house. That's what we thought. Then the market crashed, and then we lived there for five years and not two years, and then we sold it and lost tens of thousands of dollars on the house because God was mad at us for some reason. This is just how we think, you know? Well, then we're looking for a house, and we find the house that we're in now, and it's a foreclosure, which most foreclosures that I've ever looked at need a ton of work, and I don't mind that. Um, but this one didn't. It apparently, was, the neighbors told us was so bad that Fannie Mae came in, brought her crew in, like took all the stuff out of it, fixed it all up, painted it, put new carpet in it. It was like buying a 20-year-old brand new house. And it was, it was fantastic. And what we paid for it, my neighbors were mad at me for five years for what we paid for it, for what it did to their housing values. You know what I mean? So like, God did that. Now, there's a difference between me being thankful to God and me being just thankful or thankful like to me, or thankful to my wife for finding it. Like if, if I'm thankful to me, then it's like a pat on the back, like, hey man, good job finding that house. Way to go, you found a deal. If it's God, and I'm in control in that situation, you know, if I'm thankful to God for giving me that, the one who, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy, the giver of all good gifts, then he's in control, and I'm at his mercy, and it changes things. That gratitude and where it's directed um, changes things. I sent out in the weekly, and if, if you don't get the weekly, you should go to the, the, um, our homepage and sign up for the weekly at the bottom there. And in the blurb that I put at the beginning, I linked a video to a pastor, and I saw this a few months ago. It's just 10 minutes on his practice over the past like five years of intentional gratitude and how it's changed his life. And it's worth your 10 minutes. Um, and he, so he, he uses a quote, it's from Ann Voskamp, joy doesn't lead to gratitude, but gratitude leads to joy. And that's worth thinking about. And I, and I believe him, gratitude leads to joy. He said he made time every day, he made it a habit. And so he found a time when he was not, um, not super distracted. And so for he's a swimmer, and so what else can you do when you're swimming? So he, while he was swimming, chose to rehearse the things that he's grateful for. Um, and he thought it would improve his emotional well-being maybe 2 to 5%. And what he found is that it improved it like 30 or 40%, <laughs> um, this habit of being grateful for things. And so he, he said he realized how many things that he has to be grateful for. And um, I was just talking to someone yesterday that read that the other day. And, and she was like, yeah, we do have a ton of things to be grateful for. And you don't even realize it, how easy it is to forget to be grateful how you can be grateful for little things, how you can be grateful in the middle of difficult times, and how it becomes a habit. And I'd throw a few things in there. Gratitude breeds humility, um, especially if there's an object. In, in biblical gratitude, there's an object, and it's the Lord. And so it, it breeds a humility of you're not in control, and he is in control, and he's been good to you. Um, gratitude improves our theology because we're constantly reminded of how good he is and how uh, big he is. Gratitude improves our relationships. I mean, think about if you took the three people that are closest to you, and every day you wrote down one thing about them that you're grateful for, and then you told them that thing, 
Like, how, that's so stupid, it's so simple, you know? But how much would that change your relationships and change your life if you aligned and decided that's, that's where I'm going to start? Uh, and gratitude protects us from those ditches of anxiety and greed because you're going to focus on, we can only focus on one thing at a time. If you choose to focus on the things that you can be grateful for, then it just keeps you from going down those roads that are harmful. So um, stuff is good. God made stuff. Stuff is good. Be thankful for your stuff and make a practice of it. Stuff is dangerous. Stuff is dangerous to so hold it loosely. This passage. But those who desire to be rich... Um, you desire to be rich. Like, let's be honest here. I, I desire to be rich. I can't, I can't get around it. You know, I'm not sure I know people that don't desire to be rich, that don't want more than they have. Those of us who desire to be rich fall into temptation. We fall into a snare. We fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. When you hear the words ruin and destruction, what do you think of? Because I think we most often think financial ruin and financial, we think it's financial, but it's not. He's saying a greater ruin can happen spiritually, emotionally, relationally, because we fall into this trap when it comes to our finances and our stuff. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from faith, they've pierced themselves with many pangs. What looks more like a snare to me, like a trap, like something if you fell into it, it'd be really hard to get out of, isn't being rich, it's being poor. Poverty looks like that, and that's how we think about it. There are more people, it seems, in the last nine months, like every highway exit you get off of, someone's got a sign and is asking and it doesn't seem like it was like that before but it does now it seems like that would be a trap if you get in that spot it would be really really hard to get out of we don't think of that about having money or wanting money we think well if i had money if i wanted to get out of that it wouldn't be so hard to give away my money that's just not true <laughs> if someone tried to get you to give away half of what you had today would that be an easy thing or a hard thing for them to do it'd be really really hard um it's a, it's a snare. We're trapped by it. Let me read you a few quotes about money. The first few are from people that are long dead, but some of the richest people in the history of our country. Rockefeller. I have made my millions, but they have brought me no happiness. The poorest man I know has nothing but money. The poorest man I know has nothing but money. Uh, the next one, Vanderbilt. The care of millions is too great a load. There is zero pleasure in it. Uh, John Jacob Astor was one of those guys, and he considered himself the most miserable man on earth. This is a quote from a more recent author. He said, our entire life, we chase the wrong things because we think having more money and buying more stuff will make us more happy. You know why a billionaire has 100 Ferraris? Because 99 weren't enough. I never really thought about it like that before, but I bet he's right. Um, but it's not intuitive to me. There was a study um, from Purdue a, a, a few years ago. The ideal income point for individuals is $95,000. Now, that's a lot of money. Some of you are thinking, well, it's not that much money. Like to, in the rearview mirror, for you, 
Um, but some of you are like, I'm never going to make $95,000. That's a ton of money. 60 to 75 for emotional well-being. That study came out a few years ago, found that past 75,000, it doesn't increase. And this one says, past $105,000, satisfaction decreases. Now, the reason I read those quotes is because I want to ask yourself, like you ask yourself legitimately, how do you, do you believe those quotes? Do you believe them? Because I don't. I don't. I find myself thinking, you're just saying that. Give me a chance. I bet I could do it. You know, <laughs> like that's what I find myself. And the scripture is bearing itself out in my heart that it is a trap and it is a, it is a snare, you know? Bill Gates has said, he's a little bit more maybe even-handed about this. He said money is like, money's great. Money will eliminate things that can cause you dissatisfaction. You don't have to worry about your mortgage. You don't have to worry about paying for your kids' college. You don't have to worry about your health care bills. But, but money can't solve all your problems. Like money can't solve cancer. Um, there are some relational and emotional problems that money creates, that you don't have if you don't have tons of money. Um, and he says money on its own, there's no way money makes you happy. Uh, do, we, do we believe that? I, I don't think we do, and that's a trap. And we hear all that, but we don't really buy it, and still we still pursue it. If not, like with our actions, in our minds at least, we think if we had that, then um, our problems would go away. There's another survey that said 9 out of 10 people, was a couple years ago, said they would give up, they would trade 23% of their future earnings to have a job with meaning. They'd trade 23% of their future earnings to have a job with meaning because they didn't find meaning in their job. But then they went on to ask the question like, so why don't more people actually do that, you know? Um, I, we've, been, we've been going through a process of interviewing some, some folks to, to bring on a pastor at church. And so one of the guys I interviewed had been in the ministry and then just circumstances ended up out of the ministry. And right now he's managing a Chick-fil-A store, which is, that's not a bad gig. You know, it's a great corporate culture. He likes the people he works with, the people he manages, the company's taking care of his family financially. It's great. And so I was like, so what, you know, what has you looking for a new opportunity? He said, my professional goal in life is to get chicken through a drive-through window in less than three minutes. And that's just not satisfying for him. And he wants back in. And I've heard a lot of people here over the years express dissatisfaction um, with their jobs and, and a willingness to sacrifice income. I haven't seen a lot of people actually do that. You know, you have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself the question, like I did make that decision 20 some years ago because I feel like that's the decision God wanted me to do. But it doesn't keep me from thinking about the 23% of income that I gave up to have a super meaningful job, you know. And so I'm in the same trap whether you have it or whether you don't. Jesus says, be on your guard against all types of greed because you don't even realize it. Um, there's a pastor who I, I uh, listened to recently, he said, in 30 years of ministry, he said, I had people come into my office all the time and talk about their struggle with lust and pornography and thinking about having an affair or had an affair and don't know what to do. He said, not once did I have someone come into my office and say, Pastor, I'm really greedy. Can you help me with that? <laughs> uh, he said, those sermons where people knew he was going to preach on greed were his least attended because no one thinks they have a problem. <laughs> it's, so, um, it's so true of us. And what, is it, what happens when a bunch of people, when a, when a culture 
you know, falls prey into this trap and this snare. You know what happens? The Kardashians happen. That's what happens when we all fall into it. Um, capitalism is fantastic. I think it has raised the tide of the poor around the world, but it's done that by springing the trap on us, and we've fallen into it that we need more. Uh, we live in a culture where there's something wrong with you if you're not rich or if you don't want to be rich. And so what senseless and harmful desires have we fallen into as a culture? What types of ruin and destruction has our desire for riches plunged us into emotionally, spiritually, relationally? How many have wandered from the faith because they've been so distracted by the worship of these other things that if I just had them, they become gods. They've chose stuff over Jesus, and they didn't even know it. Have we pierced ourselves with many pangs? And how do we respond to it? I've never seen this. I love this passage. I've never seen this before. Right after that, this is what Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee. Flee these things. Like to me, to you, if your heart is convicted by that, Run as fast as you can away from it. <laughs> it is, it's going to consume you. Flee it and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And this is what I'm, gratitude is like a path out. It's like those movies where a bomb goes off and you're like, are they going to escape? The Death Star blows up. Is the ship going to get out? It's like gratitude is that path. It's one of those paths out. Generosity, gratitude to realize what we have and to stay on that. So it's dangerous. Hold it loosely. And stuff is God, so trust him with it. Uh, trust him with it. Again, there aren't, I don't think there are hard rules on money. I think tithing in the Old Testament is the law. I think in the New Testament, it is the principle. And most of us should probably be doing more than that. And so tithing is 10% of your income. And it's the first fruits of your income so that you're reminded that um, he is the one that gave you the ability to generate wealth in the first place. It's this constant reminder, but that reminder is about relationship. It's drawing you closer to him. It's forcing you to trust him more. And so it's genuinely not about rules. It's about relationship. It's about seeing the world the way that he sees the world and responding to the needs around you the way that he responds. And so his antidote is generosity. They are to do good, they are to be rich in good works. Just the way that's worded, you can really ask yourself, am I rich in good works? Like, I have no doubt that most of the people that are here are listening, like, you do good things. You are good people. Are you rich in good works? Or are we just kind of skating by on the good works? They're to be generous, and they're to be ready to share. Man, are you ready to share? I think we're, most of us are more ready, like, you know those little wish lists on Amazon? We're more ready to when the bonus check comes in to, like, get the stuff, the next thing. We're more ready to do that. Then we've got a list of people that if I just had a little bit more, then I would share it with these people and these needs and these ministries and whatever it might be. Are we ready to share? Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's storing up treasure for themselves for a good foundation for the future. I mean, there's a question. What is the future? What is the future? At one point in this passage, he says, we brought nothing into the world 
and we will take nothing out of it. For him, the future isn't when you're 80 or when you retire at 67. The future is like a long time from now. You know, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so he's thinking in a long perspective. Um, I also read recently that 47 is the age where you start thinking that you're old, and I'm here to affirm that for you. Uh, I recently, I've started looking around and thinking, man, most of these people are younger than me. Like, when did that happen? Uh, (laughs) Your body starts telling you that you're old. In the last few weeks, we've had some icons pass away. Alex Trebek and Sean Connery have died, and you're like, whoa, those guys, you know? And you start thinking, naked they came into the world, and they're six feet under, and they didn't take any of the stuff or the fame or any of it with them. At some point, you have to answer the question, do I believe I'm going to live for 80 years, or is it something more like 80 million years? And you have to live that way. And that's what he's pushing us to. The last series where I talked about those, you know, stages on your journey of discipleship and that stage six, the life of love, a big part of that is realizing you already have all the stuff that you need and that, that means the most to you, but you've been tricked into thinking that you need this, this other stuff. And so am I letting the things that I don't have rob me of the things that I do have? I read a quote um, this week from Elizabeth Elliot. She said, the heart which has no agenda but God's is the heart at leisure from itself. Its emptiness is filled with the love of God. Its solitude can be turned into prayer. And man, that's a quote. Like someone who is sharing God's agenda and releasing their own agenda is at leisure from itself. Um, and, and one more passage from James, because I think I know, you know how invested you are in the things of this world by how hard it is to get them away from you. So this is James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have or but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I've never read these two passages from Timothy and James together, but they both talk about food and clothing. And Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And then James says, how do you respond when you see someone that doesn't have food and clothing? Um, what, do you, what do you do about that? And so, again, I'd ask, to, like, to what extent does that verse convict you? Um, and... and it doesn't, there's not a number on it. It doesn't say, do this much. It doesn't say, here's one you can check it off the list. Like, it calls you closer in relationship with God to ask him, like, what would you have me do about that with the things that you have given me? Um, How would you have me use the things you've given me to meet my needs, to meet the needs of those around me? Uh, And at the end of the Timothy passage, he says that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Man, and the James passage gets to that. Because to the extent when you share with others, you are giving up the thing that is truly life to you, the stuff. (laughs) Like, that's the problem. Because in the passage, what he's, the truly life that he wants you to take hold of is sharing the heart of God and becoming more like Christ. And when we're generous, that's when that happens. 
And so which is truly life for us? Which feels like truly life for you? Paul, uh, in a whole other passage in Philippians, talks about learning to be content, a learned behavior, a learned emotion and attitude to be content. And that's the passage that he ends by saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like we need the power of Christ to learn how to be content. Contentment, gratitude, generosity, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things. And no one models those things more than Jesus did. Uh, You know who never whined, even though he had plenty of reasons to whine? Jesus, (laughs) who was constantly grateful to his father in in spite of what in perspective were enormously trying circumstances. Jesus, who's an expert at not holding too tight to things. Jesus. We came into the world naked, we'll leave it naked. Jesus emptied himself in that same letter to the Philippians. He emptied himself um, to come into the world and then return to his glory. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. And the gospel is not give away all your money and then God will like you and God will accept you. The gospel is trust the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all and how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The gospel is recognizing that the greatest need we ever had was to be reconciled with the God who made you, forgiven of your sins, and relieved of all your guilt and shame. And that same God that did that is going to richly provide you with all things to enjoy. And then he's going to ask you to be generous and to be ready to share. And the main thing is not the things. The main thing is our relationship with him. Now, in a minute, we're going to take um, communion. I would really challenge you this week. It's Thanksgiving. You've got a little downtime. Hopefully, you're going to be around family. We'll really challenge you to try and stay aligned, to come up with a practice. I'm going to go back to this gratitude journal. Watch that 10-minute video from this pastor. Um, but, but write down some things day by day that you're grateful for. Share them with some people around you. You know, have some people that hold you accountable, whether that be the dinner table, you know, um, whether it be your small group people, your home group people, uh, your core group people, just a friend, you know, and say, man, this makes sense. I need to do this. Will you help me? And, and set a goal, you know, of how often, how long, when you're going to do that and see if it changes things, see if it changes things. Now, I'm going to ask you, um, Jake and Julie can come back up and we have our, um, you know, communion cups here. And so we're going to do this uh, remembering the thing that we have to be most grateful for. And so if you have gotten your wafer out, Jesus uh, with his disciples said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I'd ask you to take this. And then he took the cup um, and said, this is my blood that's been poured out for you. And do this in remembrance of me. Father, I pray that you would, <coughs> that you would align our hearts with yours this morning. 
Oh, I pray that you wouldn't spare us of conviction and that we would not run from it, Lord, but we would come face to face with it, that we would confess it to you, that we would confess that your word is true, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, um, that it cuts right through us and it knows us, that we would repent of the, the ways that we have given in to desires that uh, are, are, seem normal to us but are harmful, God, and ways that those desires have harmed the people in need around us because we've hoarded our stuff instead of sharing our stuff. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the power of gratitude and uh, practice it. God, help us by your spirit to practice it. Keep us from temptations that would keep us from practicing it, Lord. And recognize your goodness towards us in more ways than we ever realized. In really more ways than we can even imagine, God. Starting with your son. And didn't spare your own son, but gave him for us, Lord. That our gratitude would start there and flow out. Um, to every area of our life where you have blessed us. And would that change us? And would it change us so that you would be glorified in the world around us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.